Well, welcome to each of you here to This Is My Story. We had this last year, a wonderful experience listening to faculty members Sonia Waters and Mark Smith and Gerald Liu and Yvette Harris-Smith share some of their life stories. And it was a transforming time um, because this is what reunions, it's part of what reunion is all about, is sharing our stories. I was uh, with the class of 69 over lunch and hearing them share summaries. I mean, how can you summarize the last 50 years? But it was, it was truly moving. And so we expect uh, to hear some more amazing uh, stories from the leaders that we're privileged to welcome here today, the Reverend Dr. Eric Barreto and Dr. Kerry Day and the Reverend Dr. Nate Stuckey and Dr. Jacqueline Lapsley. Um, in this season of Eastertide, we remember how the risen Lord showed his disciples his wounds, his scars, and we remember that we admire people for their successes, but we connect with people because of their struggles. We remember that speaking to the head leads to conclusions, but speaking to the heart often leads to conversions. And so we dare to share some of the behind-the-scenes stories of our lives. And the way this is going to work is I'll give a brief introduction to each of our speakers, and they will share their stories. And in the end, if we have time, we're running about 15 minutes late, so if we have time, uh, we'll have some Q&A. But our first uh, guest to share is uh, the Reverend Dr. Eric Barreto. Eric is the Frederick and Margaret Weyerhaeuser Associate Professor of New Testament. He holds a BA in Religion from Oklahoma Baptist University, an MDiv from Princeton Theological Seminary, and a PhD in New Testament from Emory University. And prior to coming to Princeton, he served as Associate Professor of New Testament at Luther Seminary, and also taught as an adjunct professor at the Candler School of Theology and the Caffey School of Theology. As a Baptist minister, Eric has pursued scholarship for the sake of the church. He regularly writes for and teaches in faith communities around the country and abroad, I might add. Five years ago, uh, Eric gave some brilliant lectures at the American Church in Paris, where I'm uh, privileged to serve currently. He's also been a leader in the Hispanic Theological Initiative Consortium, a national ecumenical and interconstitutional consortium comprised of some of the top seminaries, theological schools, and religion departments in the country. He is a member of the Society of Biblical Literature and the National Association of Baptist Professors of Religion. So please, with, with me, welcome Eric Bredo. Good afternoon, friends. Good to see you all. My story begins on what is indisputably the most beautiful island in the world. It's the island of Puerto Rico. Everybody yeah. nod. Yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> There's always some Boricuas in the room, right? <laughs> uh, my story begins there, but it actually begins before I was born. My grandfather, I joke, was an accidental minister. He had served in World War II, uh, could speak English well, and therefore when a Baptist missionary from Tennessee came to his little corner of the island, he translated for him, uh, for this missionary, and then stayed on as pastor of this church for the rest of his life. Uh, so that, that call to ministry begins, at least in that kind of accidental call to ministry of my grandfather. Um, I went to school in Puerto Rico inside an American military base. So when I went to school when I was five years old, I knew how to say yes, no, and where's the bathroom, but that's about it. But when you're five years old, of course, your brain is mush and ready to learn language. So I picked up English pretty quickly and learned how to fit in with all these other classmates of mine. I lived in Puerto Rico until I was nine years old, and then we moved to a town called Slidell, Louisiana. Anybody know where Slidell is? 
just like Puerto Rico, right? It's no cultural differences, no difficulties along the way. It was a difficult moment for our family. It was a hard time to figure out what it looks like to be a Puerto Rican kid uh, among largely white, in largely white communities. Um, one, one thing that happened was, in Puerto Rico, the style was to wear tall tube socks all the way up to your knees. And my friends, my new friends, friends, immediately told me I was wearing my socks all wrong, like on day one. Um, just a little, a little inkling of the difficulties of moving from one place to another. Um, but as I grew up, I grew up in Southern Baptist churches. And in that church, I felt a sense of calling when I was 16 years old. I imagined that I would serve like the pastors I had known growing up the people who had shaped my faith from behind pulpits. And I thought that what you had to do then in order to be a pastor, because I knew you had to go to college and then you got a job, and I didn't know seminaries existed, so I thought I had to go to a Christian college and then go get a job. I went into Oklahoma Baptist University with a major in pastoral ministry, and I changed that on during the first week, actually during orientation, when I discovered that there are places called seminaries. And there were places where I could continue studying. I didn't have to learn everything I needed to know about ministry in my four years of college. My last year of college, there was a new dean of students, and he had lunch with me, and he asked me if I'd thought about going to seminary at a place like Princeton or a place like Duke. Why would you go there? But, you know, one of those places. (laughs) And I said, I didn't know they had seminaries there. His storytelling, his invitation opened up a new world to me. And this place opened up a new world to me as well. What I realized throughout this whole process is that that call I had sensed when I was 16 years old was true and it was real and it was powerful. But that my, my imagination wasn't big enough to imagine all the things that God had called me to do. All I had seen around ministry was my pastors. I didn't know that I could be called to teach those pastors, to help shape their imagination about scripture, to teach them a little Greek, to maybe wonder with them what it means to preach the word of God in a time of political and economic and environmental crisis that we're facing today. Uh, So as Scott said, I taught at Luther Seminary for seven years and then was really delighted to come back here three years ago to teach at my alma mater, um, to now stand on the other side of Stuart Six, which is always a really strange experience. (laughs) Uh, to hear uh, the, 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 the stairs uh, moaning as people are coming down, not as a signal that it's almost time for me to get up and leave class, but as a time that I need to hurry and get like those last three things of my lecture done. Uh, and my teaching, I think about my teaching as, um, as kind of accompanying students in this work. My job is to download a bunch of information into their brains but to help them develop the practices of reading scripture and the kind of imagination that will sustain them for a lifetime of ministry, a lifetime of work. I can't teach them everything they might wanna, I might wanna teach them in three years or five years or 10 years. And that's actually a gift. What we do is teach what we can, meet people with their stories, um, and then delight in the ways that God uses the the little bits of teaching that we do here along the way. Uh, My research is around the book of Acts in particular and the gospel of Luke. I've written quite a bit on how we, uh, the Gospel of, of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles help spark an imagination for our differences today. That too often our underlying assumption is our, our differences, especially around race and ethnicity, are a problem we need to solve, an obstacle on the way to becoming the church that God has called us to be. 
I think Luke Acts helps us imagine our differences not as a problem, not as an obstacle, not as a curse, but the very place where God is most, most living and active today, that our differences are a gift meant to draw us to one another in love and curiosity and hope. So BTS has been a critical part of my story. It was here that I learned the wideness of Christian traditions. It was here that professors saw gifts I had that I couldn't name on my own. It was their investment that opened doors for me to continue studying and teaching and writing. And now PTS is once again a critical part of my story. Here I get, get to be a part of educating students for a church we cannot see just yet. A church we cannot recognize just yet. I, I joke that if we jumped in a time machine 10, 15, 20 years down the, in the future, we'd look around and wouldn't be able to spot the churches because they're gonna look really different than they do now. So we're educating these students to go into to lead congregations, to lead communities we can't see quite yet. It's an exciting time to be in seminary. So we're educating students into churches we cannot see. But in the end, we, our conviction is that it's a church that God has already made God's own. And that's a gift we get to be a part of. Thanks, y'all. I should have said, too, that he, he preached, uh, gave a retreat, and gave two lectures. So if he's, yeah, really, really good guy to have to your church. Our second colleague to share is Dr. Carrie Day. Uh, Carrie is Associate Professor of Constructive Theology and African American Religion at the seminary here and received her PhD in religion from Vanderbilt University in Nashville. She earned an MA in religion and ethics from Yale University Divinity School in, in New Haven, Connecticut, and a Bachelor of Science degree from Tennessee State University in Nashville. Her teaching and research interests are in womanist, feminist theologies, social critical theory, cultural studies, economics, and Afro-Pentecostalism. Her first academic book, Unfinished Business, Black Women, the Black Church, and the Struggle to Thrive in America, was published in November of 2012. Her second book, Religious Resistance to Neoliberalism, Womanist and Black Feminist Perspectives, was published in December of 2015. And in 2017, she was recognized by ABC News as one of six black women at the center of gravity in theological education in America. Wow. <clears throat> Please welcome with me, Carrie. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. Good afternoon. It is wonderful to share my story with you on this morning. But I must say that an important part of my story is that 24 hours ago, I was in Tampa, Florida in 90 degree weather. <laughs> and I came back last night and it was 48 degrees and I just thought to myself, wow. <laughs> so that's part of my story, but, but to the actual story. A small gray church sits on the corner lot of Brown Street in my hometown, Springfield, Illinois. <clears throat> this small church I grew up in is a sturdy building of gray bricks, black pane windows, and two small entrance doors. It sits surrounded by deep, luscious green grass, a place where we had many touch tag games and running marathons as children. A gravel parking lot lies to the east of the church where families 
would get out of cars three to four times a week to participate in worship services and many kinds of rehearsals. And when I say many kinds of rehearsals, a rehearsal for each night. We were a Pentecostal congregation of 60 to 100 people who entered the double doors leading into the sanctuary to beat our tambourines, to sing long songs that were marked by a call and response format and to respond to the preached word with loud hallelujahs and amens. Our time together in the sanctuary was loud, sensual, and unapologetically frenzied. That sacred time together was not just found in the sanctuary, it was found especially in the basement. The basement of the church is where we broke bread and laughed at the top of our lungs. The basement encouraged us to find God in the elements of bread and water, fried chicken and pop. And yes, I said pop. That's a Midwestern thing. It's not soda, it's pop. <laughs> Despite the austere look of the basement, we always took the time to decorate the tables with flowers and colorful, colorful paper plates. This infusion of care into our eating together communicated the importance of the body. The body was sacred. Hunger was sinful if we could meet this need. And for those members who struggled, really most of the members in our congregation, who struggled to put food on the table, these meals marked their experience of salvation, a moving feast and Eucharist celebration. The saving grace of being fed a wonderful meal when uncertain where the next meal was coming from was a pure gift and another form of worship for our community. Our black bodies and not only our minds were sites of divine knowledge. From the first moment we walked through the church doors, our experience was a deeply embodied experience. We met the first song with exuberant clapping and stomping. Sometimes, depending on how many of us were in the church, we could feel the church floor shaking as we danced and expressed God's ongoing movement and power in and through our bodies. When the choir sang, most people were on their feet, moving and swaying to the music. There was a time for dancing, or what we referred to as shouting. Shouting was dancing. Or what W.E.B. Du Bois referred to as the frenzy. This time of dancing would often go longer than the actual sermon. Sometimes dancing could end up being the sermon. We rarely had printed programs as I was growing up, but if we did, the program would always have an asterisk at the top with this statement. Program subject to change through the leading of the spirit. That was an important statement. We believed that the dance was indeed a primary vehicle through which to experience God's power, deliverance, intervention, and providence. And that could not be controlled, not even by a program. The body was not just a bystander while the mind contemplated God. The body was active and often led the mind to an experience of God. And if we made it to the sermon, the sermon was likewise a highly embodied activity. As the pastor for forcefully preached the sermon, the congregation, my congregation, not only responded through verbal cues of affirmation such as amen, some congregants stood up on their feet and talked back to the pastor in the middle of the sermon. 
Some congregants waved their hands in the air over and over, only to bring their hands back into a body hug and groan. Some congregants walked the aisles, shaking their heads before returning to their seats. Most interestingly, some congregants could be so touched by the sermon that they disrupted the entire preached message, flowing into the aisles in order to dance and shout, but only when the music began. And the music, the music was legendary in our church. It is often said that the organ preaches the sermon with the black preacher. Certainly the organ holds a sacred place within the black church, particularly within the black Pentecostal worship experience. The music can often upstage the preacher, a common fight behind closed doors that one may witness between the pastor and the organist. I was once an associate pastor. I saw that on a weekly basis. Often in the middle or at the end of the preacher's message, the organ begins to croon as, a, croon as background to the preacher's words, offering a dramatic, dramatic staccato-like flair to the preacher's words and statements. God will pick you up, the preacher said. The organ plays dramatically. Turn you around, organ plays even more dramatically. Place your feet on solid ground. Organ, organ shifts to high-pitched sounds and is loud and dramatic as if to punctuate the ending of an exclamatory sentence. We were swept away by the presence and power of the Spirit in that moment. Our bodies trembled. We experienced God. My story begins with this collective moment, with this communal experience of the Spirit. I come to Princeton as a theologian of Pentecost. I teach, write, and mentor with this community, my community, in mind, what I refer to as my great cloud of witnesses. I often remark that the first theologian I ever met was my grandmother, Rose Day, a powerful missionary within my Pentecostal tradition who empowered me to offer my first Bible study sermon in her living room when I was five years old. In coming to Princeton, my deepest desire has been to invite students to bring all of themselves, their minds, their bodies, their histories, their yearnings, and most importantly, their questions about what it means to be Christian leaders marked by the movements of the Spirit. And the Spirit often moves in surprising and unorthodox ways within the diverse worlds we inhabit but we can only bear witness to the workings of the Spirit by standing within our respectively distinct traditions and developing critical distance from our traditions in order to see their blind spots, perhaps contradictions, even limitations. I imagine my scholarship on theology, womanist feminist studies, and economics, and more recently on the Azusa Street Revival of 1906, out of which Pentecostalism in North America was birthed, as well as my teaching on a range of topics, such as decolonial theories of justice, the idea of Pentecost, um, modern Christian political thought, uh, Christologies out of the African-American tradition, that all of this is meant to help students think about theology as the creation of new worlds. Theology as a way of imagining 
new and otherwise relational territories and more just loving communal spaces that are yet to exist, that implode the boundaries of our current forms of relationality. And all of this can be because of our participation in the life of the spirit. I could share so much more about my academic and intellectual journey, but my community I have described really is my story. All that I have been and will ever be is because of that community. And I am so grateful that I could share a small but foundational part of my story with you on today. Thank you, Dr. Day. Our third colleague to share is uh, the Reverend Dr. Nathan Stuckey. Nate hails from Kansas, but lives in Princeton now, where he serves as director of the Farminary Project here at the seminary. He's an ordained Mennonite, Mennonite Church USA. Nate's work with the Farminary integrates theological education with small-scale, sustainable agriculture at Princeton Seminary's 21-acre farm. He has a special interest in the role of community formation and Sabbath in the education of pastors and church leaders, youth ministers, parents, and young people. A musician, frequent retreat speaker, and farmer, Nate holds a BA in music from Bethel College in Kansas and an MDiv from Princeton Seminary. Before coming to seminary, um, Nate worked in youth ministry and farming, and he and his wife Janelle are the happy parents of Joshua. I don't know when this was written. Is he still 11? And Not Jenna and, <laughs> and Isaac. <laughs> Sorry. Please welcome Nate. So just to review, Scott, we're going from a Baptist to a Pentecostal to a Mennonite. Lord have mercy. <laughs> Dr. Jack Lapsley better come back up here and bring some decency and order to the whole thing. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, it's a great privilege to be with you today. These stories are sacred. They participate in an ancient, ancient story. And somehow all these stories are woven together, and, and I'm so grateful to, to share a bit of mine. I get to rehearse this story with some regularity with prospective students and visitors to the farm, and I sort of was torn for a while about whether I'm supposed to work up a new story, but I have a lovely colleague, uh, Megan DeWald, who has the blessing or the curse of having an office right across the hall from mine. And she basically said, just tell them the story. <laughs> so here we are. I grew up on a farm in south central Kansas where my dad grew hard red winter wheat and had a herd of registered Angus cattle. He was squeezed out of farming in the 1980s, if you know anything about the history of agriculture in the U.S. The 80s was a rough time to, to be farming. We were fortunate in that we were able to stay uh, on the farm and lease out the ground to other local farmers. I worked for some of those local farmers in high school and college. I uh, graduated from college, Janelle and I got married, and then I moved to the eastern shore of Maryland where I worked as a youth pastor for about six years. 
Following, following those years in youth ministry, I had a very unique opportunity to go back to Kansas and farm full-time. Uh, that season of farming quickly became a time of intense vocational discernment, had to own up to a sense of call to ministry, and so in 2007, packed up the wife and at that point two children and came to Princeton Seminary assuming that my love of agriculture and my sense of call to ministry were two different things. Eric mentioned in his story that at one point his theological imagination was just too small for the things that God was up to. That rings very true for me and my story. 2007, we pack up, leave the farm, thinking love of agriculture, sense of call to ministry are two different things. Come to Princeton Seminary, enrolled in a Master of Arts in Youth Ministry program, thinking I would be here for two years and then go back to work. If you had encountered my lovely spouse, Janelle, at that point, and said, uh, learned about my time here and my enrollment in the MA program, and if you had said, oh, that's a two-year program, right, she would have corrected you and said, no, no, that's not two years, it's 21 months. You show up in the fall, you leave in the spring. <laughs> well, the two-year MA became a three-year MDiv, which transitioned into five years of PhD work until we launched the farminary in 2015, and we're still here. The moral of that story, as anyone who knows Janelle will tell you, is that she is the saint here. My second year in the master's program, though, there was another student who was here who found out I'd been farming before I came to seminary. He pulled me aside and said, hey, I have this crazy idea. I think we should integrate fully accredited theological education and small-scale sustainable agriculture. I thought, well, that's a great idea, but at that point, I have no idea where my life was going. Imagination, still too small. But that was the seed of the idea that became favored conversation, endless hours of conversation with friends and colleagues in all those years of being a student. But it was just fun conversation. Fast forward to 2013, I'm in the PhD program beginning work on my dissertation when I have what I describe as the magical, mystical, terrifying moment of realizing, oh my, I can't in fact be a student forever. <laughs> How will we feed the children when I'm done? <laughs> there were three by then. A mentor of mine, uh, PTS alum Mark DeVries, uh, was coming to town for a youth forum that spring of 2013. So I called Mark up and I said, Mark, we need to grab coffee so you can tell me what to do with my life. <laughs> he came to town, we sat down, and his first question to me was, well, Nate, what's your dream? I said, what does that have to do with feeding my children? <laughs> he said, no, what's your dream? I said, well, here's a crazy dream. And I outlined the whole farminary idea for him. And he looked me in the eye and he said, let's do it. And I looked at him in the eye and said, excuse me? <laughs> he said, look, it's an idea that's time has come. If you're willing to work at this, something can come of it. And Mark, being the serial entrepreneur, systems and structures thinker that he is, wanted to know, how many hours a week could I devote to this? I said, Mark, I'm trying to write a dissertation in good conscience, I don't know, three He was unfazed. He said, great, we'll come up with a list of things you can work on three hours a week. And so we came up with a punch list of things I could work on, 
when I had had it with my dissertation, and the conversation slowly grew. That fall, we were offered, uh, as, the, as the conversation continued to unfold, we were offered a 220-acre farm in south-central Kentucky. We thought, oh my goodness, we're going to Kentucky. But we lacked two of the three things we thought we needed. We figured we needed a farm, but also a school, and yes, money. <laughs> we had a farm and no school and no money, but when we were offered the farm in Kentucky, that prompted a meeting here at Princeton Seminary involving Kenda Dean and Dale Rounds, President Barnes and Shane Berg. They took the idea to President Barnes and, and, and Shane, and uh, as it was relayed to me later, they walked away, they being Shane and Craig, they walked away and they said, that idea is out there a little bit, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's out there, but it's not totally crazy. So they didn't say no, they just sort of let it sit for a while. Fast forward to the spring of 2014, the idea has continued to grow. I'm still trying to figure out where life is leading exactly, and I get an invitation to go meet with President Barnes. I walk into his office to find a property, property survey unrolled across his desk. He looks at me, gestures at the survey, and says, so it turns out we already own a farm. Will this work? <laughs> I said, I don't know. We've got to go look. It turns out in 2010, the seminary acquired a 21-acre farm two and a half miles from the main campus. When the seminary realized they had this farminary idea, and oh, by the way, we already own a farm, <laughs> then Presbyterians want to start talking about providence and making committees. And so we did. <laughs> Spring of 2014, once we realized we had a farm, we put together a, a, a farminary steering committee. It took about a year to assess viability. What would this look like? How would we pay for it? What would its mission be? Spring of 2015, I defend my dissertation, teach a pilot course at the, far, at the farm, and graduate. And in the midst of that, Princeton Seminary decides Let's go for it. And I came on July 1st, 2015, as director of the farminary. It's almost like a fairy tale. But that's not doing justice to the story. It's not doing justice to the gospel, as far as I can tell. Because if you peel back the layers, and if you exegete closely... You recognize that the dream that lived when we arrived in Princeton had to pass away. Remember, we came to Princeton with the assumption that I would get a degree and then we would go back, I would go back to work. And what that meant was we would move back west, close to family, grow up close to extended family so that our kids would have the childhood that we remembered close to grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and close to uh, denominational homes. In about 2014, I think it was January, Janelle and I realized that it wasn't looking very likely that we would move west for work. We were blessed by a phenomenal spiritual director who guided us through naming the things that we wanted, naming our dreams 
And through that, we were able to articulate, you know, we always assumed life was going this certain way. And some incredibly important work happened that spring. It was the work of naming the dreams that were passing away, grieving those losses so that another dream could live. We're still here. Janelle's still a saint. (laughs) But the dreams that live today because of the dreams have passed away. As far as I can tell, that's life and death and resurrection. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Nate. Last but not least, Dr. Jacqueline Lapsley will share her story. Jack serves um, as Dean and Vice President of Academic Affairs and Professor of Old Testament here at the seminary. She earned her MA from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, her MDiv from Princeton Seminary, and her PhD from Emory University. Jack is interested in literary theory, ethics, especially creation ethics, theological anthropology, gender theory as tools for reading the Old Testament theologically. She's co-authored Bible and Ethics in the Christian Life, A New Conversation, which came out in 2018, edited the Gender and Method issue of Hebrew Bible in Ancient Israel in 2016, co-edited After Exegesis, Feminist Biblical Theology in 2015 with Patrick Tull, and A Woman's Bible Commentary, the third edition, 2012 with Newsom and Ringe. She serves on the editorial boards of the Catholic Biblical Quarterly, Hebrew Bible and Ancient Israel, and the New Interpretation Commentary Series with co-editors Brian Blount, Beverly Gaventa, and Samuel Adams. Jack is an ordained Presbyterian elder and teaches and preaches in congregations. Please welcome with me uh, Jack Lapsley. Well, the first thing I have to say is it's kind of hard to follow these three, right? (laughs) Wow, those stories um, are very powerful. Actually, the second thing I have to say is what an honor it is to uh, be up here with these three colleagues, uh, each of them uh, just an absolute rock star here at PTS, and it's a real privilege for me to work with them on a daily basis, um, each and every one of them. So, All right, so my story comes, uh, I've divided into three parts. Um, this is what we are, right? Human beings, we are narrating creatures. Uh, one of the things that distinguishes us from other kinds of non-human animals is that we like to order. That's a little <laughs> nod there. Uh, we like to order our, our lives into stories, uh, the, the day-to-day tumble of events, and, and for us to make sense of those. And so I've ordered mine into, into three parts. So in my 20s, I went to grad school in comparative literature, Uh, French, English, uh, 19th century novels. That was, I was all in for that. And I thought I was headed for a PhD in literature. I knew I had some modest gifts for teaching. I had done a little bit of that. And I thought it would be 19th century novels. I would spend my life teaching uh, literature, 19th and, and early 20th century literature. 
and it seemed like a very appealing life. And on some days, it still seems like an appealing life. <laughs> <clears throat> but at about that same time, I, I came, I was coming also into my kind of young adult faith. Um, I wouldn't call it a mature faith. Uh, it, was, it was not very, very mature, but it was, it was certainly more vibrant than my childhood uh, teenage faith. So that was a, a very important uh, factor at that point. So as part of my graduate school experience in comparative literature, I spent a year on exchange in a French graduate school in the late 80s. And there, my vocational goals, everything I had kind of set up for myself, very clear, I'm going to go and I'm going to get a PhD in literature and I'm going to teach literature. All of that was burned away that year in Paris. Uh, the school I was in was very intense intellectually and academically, which was wonderful on the one hand. I mean, I, I totally enjoyed that in many respects. But I also saw a lot of spiritual and psychic distress amongst my classmates, which nothing in the school's resources could address. So there was an all or nothing feeling to the competitiveness, uh, with students coming out of oral exams, literally weeping and throwing themselves on the ground uh, in agony over their failures, or sometimes just their perceived failures. So the atmosphere did not feel life-giving, and I began to rethink my own professional goals. That same year in Paris, I was attending the American Church in Paris, of which Scott is now the pastor. And there, in that congregation, I found life. There was a clergy couple there who ministered to a very large and diverse group of students from all over the world, many of them from Africa, but also from Asia, and really just everywhere. So this American church was really this very international church. I was struck by the way that the church was a place of life-giving nourishment to these young people who were so far from home. And that felt like a, such a stark contrast to what I was seeing in the school that I was in. So that year in Paris became a year-long kind of slow-motion Damascus road for me. By the end of the year, I felt that God was calling me to ministry in the church because it was obviously life-giving to so many people. I wanted to be like this young clergy couple who were making a difference to so many people. So it was at that moment, if you were here for worship and heard Dr. Bard's sermon, it was at that moment that I, you know, Jesus said, do you love me? And I said, yes, yes, I do. I, I do love you. So part two of my story. Um, my dad taught here at PTS before me. And so I grew up in Princeton uh, in the whole bit. And I remember the day that I, after I got back from Paris, I went to talk with him about my change of vocational plan. And he was tending his tomatoes in the backyard. It's just burned in my memory, this uh, conversation. And I walked out to him and I said, Dad, I think I, I, think I want to go to seminary. I, I, I think I want to be a minister. And he said, oh. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Jack. There's no money in it. <laughs> so I think he's like come to me. He's still living, and I think he um, he's made his peace with my decision. <laughs> but and with God, maybe. The first half of seminary, I thought I would be a parish pastor. I mean, that's all, that was my yes, right? My yes in Paris, my yes to Jesus was, I want to be a parish pastor. So I got here, and uh, in, in my middler year, I did two things. One was I had my church field education placement, in which I learned that I neither enjoyed nor was any good at leadership in the church, like in worship, preaching, the whole bit, no. So I, my friends, many of whom are sitting here today, about halfway back, they were coming back from their field education Sunday and they were like, oh my gosh, I wish they would let me preach more, I wish I could lead worship more. And I just kept thinking, I, kind of silently, like I didn't want to say it, you know, because everybody is so called. And so I was like, God, I would rather have my organs removed than do that for a living, right? So I asked myself, what does that mean? Am I, was that call all wrong? Am I a freak? Like, is there something wrong with God? Is there something wrong with me? What is the problem here? So fortunately, another thing was happening that same middler year. I was a Hebrew teaching assistant for Dennis Olson, like now my colleague, Dennis Olson. And I was really good at that. And I loved it. So what did that mean for my vocation? In my first year of seminary, perhaps like many of you, um, I had TH-101. It's now called TH-2101, which Carrie Day teaches, I believe. Um, Wish I'd had her. Anyway, um, I, <laughs> but the, a great thing about TH101 that year, a great thing, was that we did read Calvin's Institutes. And in the Institutes, I found that Calvin said there are four offices within the church. The pastors, the elders, the deacons, and the doctors. Which he meant by which he meant the teachers. So this realization that I could be a teacher called to a ministry within and for the church, that was it. That was, it was a huge relief and also just um, a tremendous sense of energy flowed through me that I felt, ah, this is what you were calling me to do. Um, in addition to Calvin, Frederick Buechner's famous saying that about vocation has been a light for me. The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Now, I'm not sure that the world feels all that hungry for biblical Hebrew, <laughs> but I think it's hungry for good biblical interpretation. And so that has been my guiding light uh, throughout my 21 years here at Princeton. The last part, part three, the rest has been all um, as natural as breathing. I went to Embry for grad school. I came back here to teach. Uh, and I still feel that my calling after the, these 21 years has been as 
a minister within and for the church, like always looking back to Calvin, thank you. Uh, I still feel that. I feel it probably deeper than I ever did before. But now, um, moving beyond the church itself, thinking about the world and the need of the world and the church in service to the world. So what PTS is doing now is, uh, as it always has, is preparing people to serve the world that God loves, um, partly through the church, but in all kinds of different ways. So now I serve in an administrative role as the dean, and on a bad day, I wonder how I ended up here. Uh, in the dean's office, in theological education, here at PTS. But on a good day, I feel that sense of calling even more so now that I have a bigger role in shaping the path forward for the seminary. On good days, I sense that gladness and that hunger meeting together. And I feel blessed that most days are good days. Thank you.